The American Council of the Blind presents ACB Reports, a monthly news magazine containing topics of interest to people who are blind or have low vision. I'm Mike Duke. This month, the annual ACB Legislative Seminar is looming on the horizon, plus building the nearly perfect audiobook. But to begin ACB Reports for January 2010, President Mitch Pomerantz introduces us to Mimi, a blind journalism student from the country of Macedonia, who recently served an internship in the ACB National Office. We uh, had a young lady who just completed an internship in the ACB office, who is now interning in her chosen profession, which is journalism. And Mimi is from Macedonia. So hi, my full name in the full form is Milica Terpevska. I come from Macedonia, that is a small country in the Balkans, uh, part of former Yugoslavia, and I'm 22 years old. I'm still a student, a journalism and political science student at the American University in Bulgaria. As somebody said yesterday, um, some of us had to be our own rehabilitation counselors and struggle to find proper training for ourselves that will match our needs. And uh, that was what I did uh, when I came to the United States. I came uh, supposedly for an internship that was supposed to last only for four months last fall, but it turned out to be an endeavor and an adventure that will last for a year. That was because uh, the internship uh, for me didn't only involve my traveling to the United States and my English language proficiency or skills, but it also involved getting around in a big city, which is Washington, D.C., that's where I live now, using public transportation and learning about the American culture and way of life. So the first three months in the U.S. for me were a real struggle. I attended the Colorado Center for the Blind in, uh, for two months. That is a center that uh, didn't quite meet my needs. That's when I turned to uh, ACB, which is an organization that tried to help many individuals like me achieve their goals. And they indeed did help me achieve my goals one by one. They were an organization that asked me what my goals are here in the United States, what I want to achieve, and they tried and they did achieve them just when I lost all my other hopes that I could turn this endeavor into a success. So they uh, were able to find a placement for me at the Miami Lighthouse for the Blind, a training center that provided a scholarship for me to attend their independence and mobility training. That's uh, a training that I attended for uh, almost three months in uh, Miami, Florida. Uh, that was a very good training that got me in shape and um, that was how I started my training and my preparedness for my internship that I started with the Scripps Coward Foundation Wire this June. They were also able to prove to my current employer, the Scripps Coward Foundation Wire, that what it takes for a blind individual like me to uh, succeed 
in the United States and in a big city is a proper training so that they prove that. Now I am uh, honored to have been given the time to attend this convention and to have been given the time to intern in the ACB National Office for two months, late spring this year. It was a real pleasure to work with ACB to get familiar with their organizational structure and with what they do. I want to thank ACB. Thank you all for what you did to make my endeavor a success and to make this experience become a real growing experience for me. And I also want to give tribute to several individuals who were um, especially concerned and uh, they helped me get where I am now. I will start with uh, the person from the National Office of ACB who really stepped up to the plate when uh, I was thinking all my hopes were lost, when I thought all my prospects were dire and I was considering going home and declare this adventure a failure. That is Eric Bridges, our our director of advocacy and governmental affairs. That was the person who listened to what I had to say about what I've gone through in this country and was optimistic, as I said again, when I wasn't, and uh, was able to uh, find a, me a placement in the Miami Lighthouse for the Blind. He was able to uh, reach out to my employers and explain my situation, but he never gave credit to himself in, in several occasions that we talked about what he, what he did. He was always giving the credit to the, the organization he works for, so I think this is the moment when I have to give credit to him. <laughs> then, I also want to mention some other individuals that helped me along the way. That's uh, Daryl and Karen Shandro, ACB members from Arizona. Uh, Paul Edwards from here, from Miami, Florida, who hosted me for uh, almost four months in his house while I was attending the training in Miami. Also, my colleagues, my former colleagues from the National Office of ACB in Arlington, Virginia, Melanie Branson, our executive director, my former supervisor, as well as uh, two other individuals that are presently helping me with advices, guidance. Oral Miller, who is a, a president of the Eyes for the World Eunice Ferreto Foundation. That's the foundation that made it possible for me to attend this convention. And Charlie Hodge from Arlington, Virginia, who helped me find a sponsorship to pay my mobility training in Washington, D.C. And uh, also, he helped me find sponsors for a KNFB reader that's a piece of assistive technology that can scan and uh, read uh, print documents with the help of synthesized speech. So again, <laughs> thank you all for doing this for me, and I'm sure that ACB will continue helping individuals like me be successful in the world which is not uh, designed for us blind individuals. Thank you. Thank you, Lily. Good luck to you.
Mimi is well on her way to a successful career in her chosen field. ACB wishes her many successes. From the American Council of the Blind, you're listening to ACB Reports. Each year, the Board of Directors of the American Council of the Blind, affiliate presidents, and delegates to the annual Legislative Seminar assemble in Washington, D.C. ACB Executive Director Melanie Brunson says to expect a very full agenda for these meetings. So, Melanie, when will these meetings occur? The board meeting will be on the 19th, and then the president's meeting will be on the 20th and 21st, and the legislative seminar will start in the afternoon of Sunday the 21st and go through Tuesday the 23rd of February. What are the issues that you expect to see come forth in these meetings this year? I haven't actually talked with Eric in any um, depth about this, but I know that the bills that we are interested in have not passed, and so I'm assuming they will still be on the agenda as of February. I expect that we will have the Pedestrian Safety Enhancement Act which is the bill that we are supporting to eventually result in some alterations that will make quiet cars noisy enough that we can tell where they are. The other bill is the 21st Century Telecommunications and Video Accessibility Act, which has a whole bunch of provisions regarding access to telecommunications for people with disabilities and for people who are blind in particular. Will the outcome of this copyright conference uh, have any impact on that? I think part of how we're going to treat that may depend on the results of the meeting that Eric is attending right now. What that essentially involves is the United States has an exception to its copyright law which enables organizations such as Bookshare and Recording for the Blind and Dyslexic and the National Library Service for the Blind to produce books in alternate format without first seeking permission from the publisher and distribute those to people that they know are either blind or have print reading disabilities within the United States. The World Blind Union is concerned that this information ought to be able to be shareable across international borders so that Bookshare could let Canadian blind students or students in the UK use their textbooks and NLS could have access to books that are done by the libraries for the blind in other countries so that agencies wouldn't have to duplicate their efforts and folks could have access to information more freely and inexpensively. So the World Intellectual Property Organization is this very week considering a proposal that would basically create a similar copyright exception internationally. Previously, the Bush administration had said that they weren't convinced that it was needed and had not really wanted to pursue it too much, but the Obama administration has been moving in a direction that indicates that they are, in fact, supportive of the expansion of copyright law so that there would be more free flow of information across national borders. What they are not sure of yet is the actual mechanism that they want to use to achieve that. 
but they have been making some very supportive statements about what they want the end result to be. On a related matter, one of the speakers at um, the legislative seminar will be Daniel Goldstein, who is the chief attorney handling our lawsuit against Arizona State University for use of the Kindle in their classes, which is right now inaccessible to blind students. What's the status of that litigation right now? Well, the depositions were just taken, and a bunch of discovery was just completed, and uh, we're waiting right now to see what happens following all of that. Anything about the president's portion of that meeting that you want to talk about? We've talked about having some training for affiliates to help preserve their schools for the blind, which in these days of tight government budgets are under attack for consolidation into other schools or closure altogether. It was suggested that we do for affiliates a training that we did for the board last fall on how to implement conflict of interest and confidentiality policies um, because more and more nonprofit organizations are being required to have those in place in order to be viewed as an ethical and responsible charity that people will want to give to. And also, there's some new provisions regarding who needs to file Form 990s. And since many of our affiliates are 501c3 nonprofit organizations, we want to talk to them about some of that. Kathy Martinez, who is a a very good friend of ACB's and is visually impaired and was just confirmed to head the Federal Office of Disability Employment Policy. And she's going to be one of our speakers, I believe, at the President's meeting. So we're going to have a variety of subjects covered. What are the registration deadlines? We're really trying to encourage people to register in advance because we have to give good counts of lunches. Actually, we'll probably make it the 15th of February for everything. And people will need to make their hotel room reservations in January, though. And where will it be? It's going to be at the Holiday Inn National Airport in Arlington, Virginia. It's very close to Reagan National Airport. We should have the registration information on the website probably by the end of the first week in January if we don't get it up before. So people can check the website, people can check with their affiliate president, and they can also call the ACB National Office if they want to sign up for either or both of the meetings. Melanie Brunson spoke with us from the ACB National Office in Arlington, Virginia. During the 48th Annual Convention of the American Council of the Blind, the Assembly gained insight into how the National Library Service works very hard to build the nearly perfect audiobook for its patrons. NLS Director Frank Kurt Silke introduced Mary Beth Wise, whose voice is familiar to many readers of talking books. Mary Beth Wise is a native Floridian. She has a bachelor's degree from Barry University. She graduated from Catholic University with a Master in Fine Arts in Acting, and she's now in the library school. Uh, She's been with NLS since 1996, so she's not a newcomer. 
I would appreciate it if you'd uh, welcome uh, Mary Beth Wise and give her a few minutes. Of making many books, there is no end. Ecclesiastes. We at the National Library Service are in the business of making books, and we strive to make the perfect audiobook. Sometimes we succeed in making the near-perfect audiobook. Of course, the writer takes the first step and creates a work of art on the page. The process of converting that work of art into a spoken word recording is a different kind of task, and through it, another creation is made. The narrator, through his or her interpretive skills and with the raw material of the voice, takes marks on a page and gives them life. There are many steps in creating the near-perfect book. But what is the perfect book? We know that perfection is impossible, but near-perfection is sometimes attainable. What do we want in a book? We all have different ideas about what a good book is, what a perfect book might be, and these ideas change depending on what our mood is, what we desire at any given moment, and what our information needs are at a particular time. Just as in theater, film, and music, books serve many purposes in our lives. Sometimes we want to be entertained and not have the burden of thought. Other times we want comfort, and sometimes we need specific information. We need to know some fact or learn about how to do something. So the near-perfect book depends on what we want at any given moment. <laughs> Alberto Manuel says in his wonderful book, The Library at Night, that books grant us myriad possibilities, the possibility of change. We pick our way down endless lists, choosing this or that volume for no discernible reason because of a cover, a title, a name, because of something someone said or didn't say, because of a hunch, a whim, a mistake, because we may find in this book a particular tale or character or detail, because we believe it was written for us, because we believe it was written for everyone except us, and we want to find out why we've been excluded, because we want to learn, we want to laugh, or lose ourselves in oblivion. The perfect or near-perfect book? The Ottoman poet Latifi said a book was a true and loving friend who drives away all cares. A Chinese proverb says a book is like a garden carried in the pocket. And Jeremy Collier said books support us in our solitude and keep us from being a burden to ourselves. So the near-perfect audiobook, how we do it. The process starts at NLS with creating the near-perfect book collection. The head of collection development, Ed O'Reilly, and his team of librarians search through book reviews, scan the bestseller lists, take suggestions from our patrons in order to create a well-balanced collection that reflects the collection of a typical public library. Of course, this is particularly challenging as a national library service that is catering to the needs of all 50 states and U.S. territories in addition to U.S. citizens abroad. We must produce books that appeal to a broad range of people with many interests. Every year, the U.S. publishes over 150,000 books, and of these, 2,000 are produced by NLS in audio format. The collection development section works very hard to choose fiction and nonfiction titles that will appeal to and meet the needs of an extremely diverse patron base. Mysteries, westerns, romances, how-to books, poetry and literature, 
Books on current events and politics are all chosen by our collection development librarians, who must also analyze each book for its particular characteristics in order to give navigation instructions for the new digital versions. Our digital talking book machines are currently being manufactured, and we have been recording books in the digital format for several years in order to build up our digital collection. The collection development librarians carefully analyze how each book is structured and accessible in print, and they give suggestions to ensure that the producers who record and reproduce the recording in digital format will apply navigation markers that reflect the structure of the print text. If a novel is divided into book one, book two, book three, and then further subdivided into chapters within the books and then sections within the chapters, we want to be sure that our readers can navigate quickly by book, by chapter, by section. Right now, I know that Alexander Scorby's narration of the Bible is being converted into digital format. And, uh, yeah. And they're working on, on marking that book up so that it is accessible by book and by chapter. Of course, the next step in the journey of creating the near-perfect audiobook is in assigning the book to a studio to record it. The production control section of our service analyzes the text and decides which studio has the resources and talent pool to record a particular type of book. AFB often was assigned foreign language books because they had a large and diverse pool of narrators with skills in an assortment of languages. Potomac Talking Books has a cadre of Spanish narrators and they are assigned many of our books in Spanish. If a book has a great deal of French or German or Farsi or Arabic names and places, we try to send that book to a studio that has narrators with some sort of expertise in those languages. The studio heads then match the narrator to the book, which is also another challenge and very important step. The studio director tries to match the qualities of the narrator, the vocal qualities, the knowledge and interests, with a particular book. An NLS narrator, whom many of you may be familiar with, is Ray Hagen. A number... Oh, great. Uh, a few years ago, he was assigned the Encyclopedia of Radio a number of years ago. This was a massive undertaking. I think it was well over a thousand pages. And Ray was the perfect match for this book. Not only was he extremely familiar with all the radio stars of the 20s and 30s, because he had already narrated numerous books on entertainers and film stars, but he listened to those radio stars as a child, and he knew how to pronounce their names. So he was, he was perfect. We tried to do that kind of matching in our books. And the narrators in our program become kind of subject experts because they have a familiarity with a subject or a language or a field of study or a genre, and it makes sense to assign those books to them. Of course, matching a narrator to a book is extremely important, and we're not always perfect. Sometimes we are far from perfect. Uh, one example that comes to mind is the Maltese Falcon that was recorded a few years ago, written in the first person from the point of view of a male character. Somehow the book was assigned to a female narrator. <laughs> And, uh, I hate to admit, it actually slipped through quality assurance. So, it's also important to have a talent pool of very skilled narrators. Many of you know this. The narrators in our program must undergo a fairly rigorous audition and approval process. Approximately one narrator for every 50 who audition is actually accepted into the program. And often people audition several times before they're accepted. Converting words from a print page into spoken word audio is not as easy as it may seem. The audiobook narrator must possess a great understanding of the English language, 
must be able to interpret an author's point of view, recognize irony, have a sense of humor, have a great facility with language and diction, must be free of regionalisms and dialects, or at least be able to neutralize them for the work and use the dialects when they are appropriate for the purposes of telling the story, the most important thing. The narrator must be a good storyteller and have the ability to make the reader feel that they are speaking to them and only them. There is an intimacy that is achieved between narrator and reader. The relationship between storyteller and listener is often deeply personal. A good narrator will go also to great lengths to be sure that a story is told well and that pronunciations of strange words, biographical names, and geographical places are well-researched. The narrator skims through the book, notates the unusual words and names, makes lists of these, and researches the pronunciations. And this research often goes beyond looking up words in the dictionary. It involves calling local chambers of commerce or museums to get the correct pronunciation of a street or a town. Is it Kissimmee or Kissimmee? If you're from around here, you know. Is it Brickell Avenue or Brickell Avenue? If you're from Miami, you'll know that. Or we call university language departments who teach Celtic or call authors themselves who are sometimes helpful and sometimes have no idea how a word is pronounced and say, do it however you want. That's always fun because we can always say it's done the way we said it's done. There is always a monitor present when narrators are reading, and this is a requirement of NLS to ensure that text isn't skipped. The studio who produces the book then does a 100% review of the book before it is submitted to NLS. They compare the text to the audio to be sure everything is there and words are pronounced correctly. If there are odd noises in the recording or the sound quality is bad, the reviewer notates this and the recording is corrected. So by the time NLS receives the book, it should be near perfect. If all the reviewing processes are followed, the book should be in very good shape. But things have gotten by. I'll share with you a few stories that have become part of the oral history of our studio and are talked about for years on end. These stories come up now and again and serve as a fair warning to the narrators and reviewers to be more diligent in researching and reviewing. Uh, many years ago, the opening announcements of the book Other Rooms, Other Voices by Truman Capote was read by the narrator other Voices, Other Rooms by Truman Capote. <laughs> In a recording of The Exorcist that was done many years ago, the name of the coffee shop chain, spelled H-O-T-S-H-O-P-P-E, was pronounced Hot Shoppy. <laughs> and it came up throughout the book, <laughs> which was challenging to correct. One of our patrons let us know about this, because unfortunately it did get out in the field. And it is tough when a word is mispronounced not one time, but throughout a book. You can imagine a book, um, how often the word submariner appears in a novel called Dust on the Sea. The word was pronounced submariner throughout. <laughs> and how about the pronunciation of chutzpats for chutzpah? <laughs> well, that was a, a book. It was written by a local Washington writer and the author's sister who uses our program called The Librarian, and the librarian called our director, Mr. Silkey, and let us know, and it was fixed. We're not always perfect, but we are nearly perfect most of the time. Thank you. But if something is wrong, the book is sent back to the studio, it's corrected and resubmitted later on. So after all of those things are corrected, 
It is released for the mass duplication and distribution to you, our patrons, who we work very hard to please. And hopefully, if not perfect, it is near perfect, as near to perfection as possible. You've been listening to ACB Reports, heard on radio information services nationwide on side four of the Braille Forum cassette edition and throughout the world on acbradio.org. ACB Reports is produced at Radio Reading Service of Mississippi, a service of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Send suggestions and comments about this program to reports at acbradio.org. Contact the American Council of the Blind online at acb.org or phone 800-424-8666. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next month for another ACB Reports.